fantastic. Right, well, it's my, uh, my great pleasure to welcome Andrew up to uh, share God's word with us. Excited to hear what he's got to bring and to conclude our, our series on Hebrews. Father God, I thank you for this young man, and I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is eternal, and I thank you you've placed your Holy Spirit upon Andrew this morning, that he might bring to us exactly what it is you want him to bring. Please bless it to our hearts and our minds, I pray. Amen. <coughs> okay, does that, does that sound okay? Is the Wi-Fi good? Good? Okay. Um <coughs> So, uh, good morning, everyone. I'm very excited to uh, have the opportunity to speak uh, this morning. Um, in July, I finished my program with Jubilee Centre, which is a think tank in Cambridge. And uh, as part of that, the four of us doing uh, the program, um, Hannah, Catherine, Peter, and uh, myself, did a collaborative research project on the topic of food. So that's what I'm going to speak about uh, today. Uh, before we start, I need to say a couple of things at the outset here. Uh, firstly, I'm only going to touch on a few aspects of food. I could happily speak for hours on the subject, but you'll all be relieved to know I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, so if you're interested in finding out uh, more about how we can think about food as uh, disciples of Jesus, um, our book, uh, Thoughtful Eating, has just been published and is now available to buy. Very exciting to be able to say that. Uh, <laughs> there's also um, a summary of uh, the book available uh, online. I also have a few paper copies if anyone uh, wants a paper copy. Um, and there's a podcast series online as well. Um, that's all uh, on the Jubilee Centre website. So uh, if you're interested in finding out more, do go and have a look at uh, some of those uh, resources. Um, secondly, um, speaking on this topic, I want to acknowledge that for some people, food is not an easy subject to uh, think and talk about uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And uh, in what I say this morning, I don't want to be uh, insensitive to that. And then thirdly, I want to acknowledge a huge thanks to the many people who made doing this research um, possible. Um, I want to particularly thank all the people in this church who have supported me and prayed for me over the last year. Um, also to the staff at Jubilee Centre and especially to Hannah, Catherine and Peter. Um, I love doing the project and a huge part of that was the fun we had collaborating on it together. And of course I want to express my gratitude to God for all the amazing blessings he has given me this year. That's the preamble done. Today I'm bringing to um, a close a series on the book of Hebrews. Um, and we've been exploring this theme of Jesus is greater. And today I'm going to speak on the topic, Jesus is greater than food. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews 13. It's going to be up on the screen, I hope. Um, so I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 16, and I'm reading from the NIV translation. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial food. 
which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister as a tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the tent. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking to the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Let me provide some context for what Hebrews 13 represents. In Hebrews chapters 1 to 12, we have this series of amazing theological sections that we've been exploring over the last few weeks. And the theme there is Jesus is greater, as we've said. But uh, so far, there haven't been that many specific instructions or uh, practical um, applications of this. Um, but this changes in chapter 13, as we've just read. Now, chapter 13 is best described as an epilogue to the rest of the book. Uh, when we read it, it might seem a bit like a disconnected series of uh, instructions that don't really seem to bear much relation to the rest of the book. So how are, the, how are they connected? Well, as we know from elsewhere in the book, the community that the author is writing to is being persecuted, and this is causing some people to falter and lose their faith. And the author's aim in writing is to strengthen and unite this community around a common vision, that is, that Jesus is greater. The instructions given in chapter 13 focus on strengthening and uniting the community, but this ties through their practical everyday living. So these instructions are actually complementary to the rest of the book and written with the same aim in mind. The worldview of the community, their shared commitment to Jesus, and their way of life go together. So that's the context for this series of instructions where we have love one another, show hospitality, which I'll speak more on a bit later, care for prisoners, honour marriage, be content with what you have, and imitate the faith of past leaders. And then we get to the important verse 8, where once again the author focuses our eyes on Jesus, because Jesus is unchanging, so is the truth about him. And that's an important reason not to be carried away, as verse 9 puts it, by other kinds of teaching which don't fit in with the gospel. Now, verse 9 mentions food. Uh, the Greek word is just food in the plural. Um, but the most likely meaning here is some kind of reference, not to foods in general, but to foods in a Jewish context. And that's why the NIV translators uh, translate it as ceremonial food. It's the same word used earlier in the book in chapter 9. Um, the author's just been describing some of the ceremonies under the Old Covenant. And then the text says, This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food, same word, and drink, and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Um, another indication that the author has in mind foods in some kind of Jewish context is this word benefit. Um, initially, when you read this, it might seem slightly odd. If you're here and you're alive this morning, we can all agree food has benefited you. But um, that isn't what the author means here. Um, in Hebrews, the author uses this word specifically to refer to salvation. So in other words, eating ceremonial food cannot accomplish, can never accomplish what Jesus accomplished for us. That is restoring our relationship to God. And then let's think about the word heart. Again, in some sense, both physically and emotionally, our hearts are strengthened by eating food. But in this passage, the author is using heart to speak about our spiritual faith. And that's why we should be strengthened by grace, not by food. So in some way, although the exact 
uh, application is slightly unclear. It appears the audience were holding on to aspects of Jewish religious practice, possibly eating Jewish festival meals, uh, as suggested by commentators. Um, now, that might not be wrong in every circumstance, but clearly in this context, the author is worried that the audience haven't fully understood that Jesus is greater and that the grace offered through his life and death and resurrection is entirely sufficient. That's what the author means in verse 10. We have an altar is a reference to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And that way it's like the phrase, we have a great high priest earlier in the book. It shows that Jesus is greater and so much greater, in fact, that even the priests under the old covenant are not automatically included. Only disciples of Jesus who have chosen to follow him partake of the grace which he offers to us. So the approach the author is urging his audience not to follow can be described as a wrong way of thinking about food. Because Jesus is greater, we don't have to participate in any kind of ritual under the old covenant, including any kind of eating. Jesus' grace is entirely sufficient. So does this mean that food doesn't really matter then? On the contrary, food is important, and you can see that actually in Hebrews 13 itself. Look at verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality. A combination of food and shelter is specifically instructed here. And then look at verse 16. Do not forget to do good and share with others. The word share refers to giving to meet the material needs of other believers here. And especially in biblical times, one of the most practical and important ways to do this was to share food. And notice how the author links verse 2 and verse 16 in our passage, both times beginning, do not forget, uh, really highlighting and emphasizing these two interrelated instructions. Um, so the key is to place um, food and eating uh, in a worldview, a way of understanding what life's all about, uh, that puts Jesus at the center because he is greater. Um, so let's do just that and see how Jesus relates to food. Now, if you look in the accounts of Jesus' life, you can't get away from food, actually. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. I don't think uh, he was. Uh, it's an exaggeration, but we have to admit he got that reputation somewhere. Take a look at this from the Gospel of Luke. Um, in chapter 5, Jesus eats at Levi's house, the tax collector, really annoying the Jews of the time. Um, chapter 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Um, these are just a few of the highlights. Luke 14, Jesus shares a meal with Pharisees and then teaches about food and justice. Chapter 22, he eats the last supper with his disciples. The last thing he does is eat a meal with them. And chapter 24, he's recognized by his disciples when he breaks bread with them after his resurrection. Um, New Testament scholar Robert Karras uh, has this great quote. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> um, so eating and drinking was a key part of Jesus' lifestyle. Um, so what is a biblical um, understanding of how we should think about food then? So from all the biblical texts about food and eating, two key themes emerge, delighting in food and sharing food. And both of these themes are well expressed in uh, theologian Norman Worsley's summary statement of the biblical vision for food. He says that food is not a manufactured product that we control, but rather it is God's love, made nutritious and delicious, given for the good of each other. God's love made nutritious and delicious for us to delight in, given for the good of each other, for us to share. So first of all, let's think about uh, delighting in food. Food is an expression of God's love, a gift freely given to us. And this perspective on food helps us to truly enjoy and savor eating. And our response is one of gratitude to God for food, 
and to the rest of creation, to the soil, the plants, and the animals, which make eating possible. This means that part of delighting in food is delighting in God's creation, which means respecting and caring for the creation upon which we depend. God's concern for the creation and his people is wonderfully expressed in Psalm 104, which is this beautiful poetic meditation on uh, God's creation. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. We see in this psalm that delighting in food is part of God's creational design, and we also see that God has a profound concern for food and for the sustaining of his creation. Humans and animals are placed side by side in this psalm. How can we delight in food? Well, a biblical answer is joyful gratitude. The Bible often links joy and eating. Think of the parable of the prodigal son, where the joy of the long-lost son returned prompts the father to hold a celebratory feast. Or think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. When Jesus is given the five loaves and two fish, the text says that he took them, looked up to heaven, gave thanks, expressing gratitude for the food, and then gave the food to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and Jesus instructed his disciples to collect the leftovers. And there are several things we can learn from this story. God provides food for people to enjoy, here directly through Jesus' ministry, but also all the time through his creation. This was a totally unexpected miracle, and I think we can be fairly sure that the people eating the food enjoyed their impromptu picnic. Jesus gave thanks to God for the provision, even when it was so small. He showed profound gratitude for the food. And when we say grace today, we follow Jesus' example. And finally, Jesus valued the food. He instructed the disciples to gather up the leftovers, and most Jews were grateful. Eating characterized by ingratitude fails to see beyond one's own place. But true delighting recognizes that food is always a gift from God. Psalm 34 encourages us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think this isn't just a metaphor. This is referring to real physical tasting and eating delighting in God's gifts. So that's delighting. Let's think about sharing. Food was designed by God for sharing with others. And the significance of eating together is well expressed by this proverb, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. And this shows us what we all know, really. Sharing food with others is more important than whether what we're eating is an expensive restaurant dish or a simple dinner made at home. Now, who we eat with who we share food with is really important in our society, but it was even more important in first century Palestine during Jesus' lifetime. Meals expressed social status and boundaries between different groups. But Jesus' table fellowship, his eating and drinking with other people, was radically inclusive and therefore subversive. As I said, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was so well known for enjoying food around the table with others. He didn't behave like a Jewish rabbi should have, he ate with people like tax collectors, which angered other Jews. But Jesus didn't accept boundaries for meals. He went to the houses of the elite and the marginalized, rich and poor, religious and irreligious. He welcomed everyone into his new kingdom community. And Jesus' eating and drinking was some of the most controversial ways that he did so. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus says about himself, the son of man came eating and drinking. That's how important sharing food with other people was to Jesus. And a great example of people eating together is feasting. Now, of course, um, these two themes of delighting and sharing go together. Um, the is in the Old Testament, the Israelites are actually commanded to bring their whole family and households together 
and eat the produce of the land and rejoice. So think about that. It's not optional. They're commanded to eat a meal together with joy. Now, as we've just read in Hebrews, we don't have to follow the exact patterns of the Old Testament anymore, but I think the principles still apply, and especially when we remember Jesus' first miracle was to provide more wine at a wedding feast. However, when it comes to sharing food, we also have to think about social justice. <coughs> human, si- human society currently has two contradictory problems with food. There are about 650 million people in the world who are obese, but there are also about 821 million people who are undernourished, who don't have enough food. And both of these are issues of social justice. Uh, this is obvious for those who don't have enough food, but it's also true for um, uh, those who are obese, because in higher income countries like our own, obesity is correlated with poverty. And this is because our food systems um, supply an excess amount of unhealthy food at cheap prices. These aren't easy problems to fix, but we need to take them seriously because the principle of sharing food as part of social justice is inherent in God's character. Throughout biblical law, the Israelites are commanded to care for the poor, especially with regards to sharing food. And Jesus' meals conveyed a similar message about social justice, and he taught that the poor and the marginalized should be invited to meals. And this means we also have to think about the environmental consequences of our food systems. The way food systems damage the environment affects us all, but it has particularly serious consequences for the vulnerable and marginalised, contributing to soil degradation, uh, to water pollution, to climate change. And this affects the global poor, as well as future generations who don't currently have a voice. So part of sharing food also means sharing it with future generations to come. So this is a brief summary of the two key biblical themes about food, delighting and sharing. And in the context of Hebrews, sharing food is particularly important. So I'm going to focus on that aspect a bit more, and I'm going to specifically look at hospitality. Now, I've already mentioned verses 2 and 16 in chapter 13, linked by that instruction, do not forget to show hospitality, to share life and food with others. And verse 2 says that by showing hospitality, some have unknowingly entertained angels without knowing it. And the reference there is probably to Genesis 18, if you know that passage, the story of Abraham and the three visitors. And a traditional Jewish interpretation of this story understood the three visitors as angels. Um, So this is most likely what the author is alluding to here. Now, the word for hospitality in Greek is philoxenia. Uh, That's usually translated hospitality elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, In Hebrews 13, because of the specific context, it's translated hospitality to strangers. Um, And that's uh, a fuller translation of the Greek word. So it's a compound, so philo, to love, and then xenos, which means um, stranger, foreigner, uh, immigrant, refugee, outsider, and also guest. And the last meaning there is important for hospitality. Uh, You can see the thinking in the word. If somebody is a guest in your home, in some sense they are an outsider, at least to your family, even if you know them. So the word can mean both love of strangers and love of guests as well as more simply hospitality. Why was it important for disciples of Jesus to show hospitality to strangers? Why is it instructed in Hebrews? Well, for about the first uh, 300 years or so of Christianity, there were no church buildings, and Christianity was mostly spread by itinerant missionaries and teachers like Paul. Now, imagine you're a traveler in the ancient world. Outside of large cities, inns and hotels are um, not common, And where they do exist, they have a pretty bad reputation. Here's a quote from a scholar on the context of the New Testament, talking about inns and boarding houses. What is known of such facilities in the literature presents a rather unhappy picture. I like the understatement here. 
The available literary and archaeological sources generally witness that two dilapidated and unclean facilities, virtually non-existent furnishings, bedbugs, poor quality food and drink, untrustworthy, proprietorism staff, shady clientele, and generally loose morals. If these are fair generalizations, it is not difficult to understand the repeated New Testament encouragement to Christian hospitality. Um, hospitality does indeed come up several times in the New Testament. Here are a few more um, examples. Romans 12. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And you can also translate that, be eager to practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. What is fascinating about the occurrences in all three passages, the, those two and then the Hebrews one, is that in all three, hospitality is given as a key example of practically demonstrating love. In our passage in verse 1, we have love one another as brothers and sisters. And then hospitality is given as a specific example of doing just that. Uh, for that reason, here's a definition that I like. Hospitality is expressing the welcome of God the Father to all through tangible acts of love, ideally through giving food, shelter, and relationships. Now, if I say hospitality is all about love, that can make it sound a bit sappy and sentimental. But the kind of love we're talking about here isn't that at all. Think about Jesus' words to his disciples in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, key words, love one another. And when does Jesus say this? At a meal with his disciples, just after he's washed the disciples' feet. That's the kind of love that hospitality exemplifies. It's not so much a feeling in the New Testament as a practice. It's an action. More than that, it's a fundamental disposition of the heart to will the good of another ahead of your own, regardless of the cost to yourself. That is love as defined by Jesus. So hospitality is about love, this kind of New Testament love, and it's one of the most tangible, flesh-and-blood expressions of love there is. Here's food, here's shelter, here's relationships. Inviting other people to sit down and eat with us around the table is one of the best ways we have to express love. Now, don't mishear me. In modern times, hospitality has often been associated with or even conflated with entertainment. Um, but remember what I just said about love. Love is the motivation for hospitality. And so hospitality and entertainment are not the same. In fact, they're quite different. To compare and contrast, uh, entertainment is about exclusion. It's about inviting the in crowd, the right kind of people. But hospitality is about inclusion. It's about saying all are welcome. Entertainment is about performance. It's showing off your home, your money, the expensive food you bought, your culinary skills, and so on. Hospitality is about service. It's about serving people, showing them tangible expressions of love. Entertainment keeps a uh, close distinction between host and guest, but hospitality blurs the lines as people come to both as hosts and guests, to receive and to give. Entertainment is sporadic. It's something that you schedule months in advance, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but hospitality is much more of a way of life, as we see in Jesus' life. It's regular, it's rhythmic, it's from the heart. Uh, entertainment is about reciprocity. I have you over, you have me over, that kind of thing. But hospitality is about generosity, giving without expecting anything in return. And entertainment's about stratification. Right? As we know, you move up or down the social ladder one party at a time. The horrible word, networking. Uh, but, uh, but hospitality is about justice. 
uh, it's about justice for the poor and the outsider. Remember, Philoxenia loved the outsiders, not the strangers. That's why hospitality is such a wonderful practice. And now, with this idea of hospitality um, set up, let me offer um, five dimensions of understanding why hospitality is important for us as disciples of Jesus. And some of these I've already touched on. Let's start with hospitality is good for you. How is this true? Well, I think we know this without studies to prove it, (coughs) but at its best, eating and drinking around a table with other people who we love is one of the most joyful experiences we can have as human beings. Eating together is good for our mental and emotional health, and studies have shown correlations between eating evening meals with others and self-reported happiness, life satisfaction, and engagement with the local community. Other studies have suggested that children who regularly eat meals with their families have better health and better academic performance. Uh, This doesn't mean you now have to go and eat every meal with other people. Sometimes it's nice to eat alone. But on the whole, eating with other people is good for you. And interestingly, according to some recent survey data, almost a third of British adults say they eat alone most or all of the time. Um, Now, it's hard to prove a causal link there, but I'm sure there's got to be a connection between that rise in people eating alone and the increasing problem of loneliness in the UK. Uh, The practice of hospitality can be part of the answer here. And then hospitality is good for us as a community. Uh, We've already seen the instructions in the New Testament to show hospitality to one another and Jesus' example of eating and drinking. And this was a fundamental practice of the early church. Remember, again, there were no church buildings for about 300 years um, of early Christianity. Uh, The architecture of a church, if that's the appropriate term to use, was a home and a table. Uh, The weekly gathering on Sunday for several hundred years was a meal. It wasn't that you came to a meal after the service. The meal was a service. Um, And eating and drinking together like this is one of the best ways we have to show love for each other, to build relationships and community. Um, If you think about the language of the church in the New Testament, the word Christian is used uh, three times in the New Testament. Uh, But um, the word uh, that is used in Hebrews 13, verse 1, the uh, word translated brothers and sisters by the NIV, it's used upwards of 350 times. So the language of the church is about community, it's about family. And following Jesus' pattern, there's no better way to experience family than sharing a meal. Hospitality is good for them. How did Christianity spread so quickly in the first few centuries all over the Roman Empire? Christians were widely persecuted. There was no religious freedom, no church buildings, no cars, no internet, no podcasts. How did this happen? Uh, Historians suggest that one of the main factors was hospitality. The gospel spread from one home to the next, one table to the next, one meal at a time. In the fourth century, the emperor uh, Julian, who was a polytheist, he was trying to uh, restore the um, uh, pagan gods of the Roman Empire, uh, he wrote a famous letter in which he said that it was the hospitality of the Christians that attracted so many to their faith. And he actually urges the priests of the Roman gods to copy the Christians by showing hospitality and showing generosity to the poor. Uh, As we know, uh, Julian's attempts didn't work, but his letter is a witness to just how powerful this everyday practice was. Uh, What um, the writer Rosario Butterfield has called radically ordinary hospitality. So hospitality is for the church community, it's for us, but it also expresses love that must go beyond the church community. Uh, This is a great quote from Tim Chester, who wrote uh, a book, A Meal with Jesus, which is great. 
And the quote is, Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or run events. He ate meals. In our post-Christian culture, when so many people are suspicious of organized religion of any kind, eating a meal is one of the best ways to get to know people well, to share life with them, and to show them the love of Jesus. Fourthly, hospitality follows Jesus' example. I've already spoken about Jesus eating and drinking, but one further point I want to make is that the example of Jesus shows us that hospitality involves being both a host and a guest. Uh, In the miracles of provision, like feeding the 5,000, Jesus is the host, providing food for thousands of people. But at other times, we find Jesus accepting other people's invitations to eat with them. Um, As I said earlier, hospitality blurs the lines between host and guest. Jesus came to meals to both give and to receive, to contribute, not just to consume. So finally, hospitality follows God's example. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did God create the world? Now, scripture doesn't directly tell us, but uh, theologians have thought about this question, and a good uh, biblical answer is that God creates from love, because God is love. God exists as Trinity in perfect relationship with the Son and the Spirit. They are constantly giving and receiving love from each other. Though the three persons of the Trinity are distinct, they always abide in each other and make room for each other. So through this understanding of God as Trinity, we can see that God creates the world because it is in his nature to make room for others to be and to flourish. Thus, the very creation of the world can be described as an awe-inspiring act of hospitality. When God makes room for others, plants, animals, human beings, to be and to flourish in this world. Norman Wordsworth again puts it like this. God creates the world as an expression of divine hospitality and as the place in which people are invited to extend hospitality to others. And when we recognize this, it can transform even our everyday eating. Wordsworth again, at its best, eating is a sharing and welcoming movement that makes room for others. Insofar as people learn to live in hospitable ways with each other and within their places, they participate in the eternal, hospitable ways of God that daily create, sustain, and fulfill life. Hebrews confirms that Jesus is far greater than food. Of course he is, because he is God, and God is the creator of food and life. Food is God the Trinity's daily invitation to delight in and share his love. So in closing, let me suggest two practical applications. First, from verse uh, 16 of um, the chapter in Hebrews we read, something about sharing. Um, Think about how you can express hospitality. As we've discussed, that can be as a guest or as a host, but perhaps in the next couple of weeks, think about when do you have the opportunity to share a meal with someone who you don't normally share a meal with, whether that's a friend from church or from outside church. Uh, I've listened to lots of sermons, and uh, I know what uh, I often think when I hear something like this. I don't have time. My life is already full. Um, If that's your response, that's okay. Uh, It's probably what people all around the room are thinking. (laughs) We live in an always busy culture, And this is an area I'm currently uh, working on in my own life and trying to figure out what it means to live as Jesus did. I haven't got all the answers, um, but I love this quote from John Mark Homer that's really resonated with me um, recently. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, 
you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. I think that's so true. And when we look at Jesus' lifestyle, what did he make time to do? To eat meals and lots of them. So if you feel like your life is too busy, so it probably is, but I hope I've convinced you this morning that meals are worth making time for. Um, I also have another suggestion, however, and this one is um, easier to fit into your life because you probably uh, already do it to some extent. Uh, if hospitality is about sharing, um, then this suggestion is about delighting. Those two ways of relating to food, delighting and sharing that I spoke about earlier. And this one is inspired by verse 15 of the chapter in Hebrews. Let us continually offer praise to God. When do we do this regularly in our daily lives? When we give thanks for food by saying grace. As we saw in the example of Jesus feeding the 5,000, he gave thanks for the food before giving it to the people. Saying grace is about expressing gratitude for food, recognizing its ultimate source in God, who creates and sustains all things. This kind of saying grace is part of what uh, we mean when we talk about sports and eating, which gave us the title of our book. My final quote from Norman Webster, thoughtful eating reminds us that there is no human fellowship without a table, no table without a kitchen, no kitchen without a garden, no garden without viable ecosystems, no ecosystems without the forces productive of life, and no life without its source in God. So ultimately, whenever we eat, it all goes back to God. Now, many of us say grace every day, and if we're honest, it can get a bit dull and perfunctory. So I'm going to suggest be a bit more creative in your expression of gratitude. There is so much to be thankful for, and all we have to do is think about the food on our plates. Saying grace can help us understand that we are dependent on God, on other people, and on the rest of creation. And we can respond with humility, responsibility, and celebration. We can thank God for all the people involved in our food supply chain. We can thank God for the animals, the plants, the soil, the ecosystems of our world which make eating possible. We can thank God for the delight and pleasure we can take in eating delicious food that he has created for us to enjoy with all their flavors and textures and smells. And we can thank God for his gift of food and life, which is rooted in God's divine love. Above all, we can thank God for Jesus' death and resurrection that changes everything for us. As we abide in Jesus, to use the language of Jesus in John 15, as we abide in Jesus and he abides in us, we are freed and transformed to receive food as a delightful gift and to generously share it with others. So let me finish by reading the final prayer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.